Section 10 of Stories in Black and White. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Is It a Man? Part 2 by J. M. Barry. During the second act, Mr. Thorpe behaved as previously, drinking in Miss O'Reilly's every word, cheering her comings and goings, and yawning, and even reading a newspaper when he should have been listening to Miss Helmsley. I once saw him make a note on his program, and felt sure it was all the talents in a nutshell. I started him on his story as soon as he joined me in the smoking-room. He had remained in his seat to shout, O'Reilly. The first time I ever set eyes on her, he began, was at Dublin, where we had both been engaged for pantomime. Yes, that woman once played in pantomime, and, what is more, she was only second girl. That is a strange thing to think of. I was the first villain. Diptio, and the shamrock said of my creation, another part admirably rendered is the diptio of Mr. James Thorpe, better known to fame as Jolly Little Jim. Mr. Thorpe, who was received with an ovation, uh, but you were going to tell me of Miss O'Reilly, I reminded him. Ah, he said, I shall never forget that first meeting. It took place at rehearsal, and when I left the theatre that afternoon, I was a changed man. You fell in love with her at first sight? Not absolutely at first sight. You see, I was introduced to her before the rehearsal began, and there was no opportunity of falling in love with her then. Still, she had impressed you? How could she impress me before I had seen her do anything? What is it in a woman that one falls in love with? Who can tell, I said. Anybody can tell, he answered, putting me down for a bachelor. It is the genius in her, or rather what we consider genius, for many men make a mistake about that. So you loved her for her genius? What first struck me was her exit. I suppose I may say that I fell in love with it at once. Then she sang, only a verse, but it was enough. Later she danced. And that, sir, was a revelation. I knew the woman was a genius. By the time the pantomime was in full swing, she was the one woman in the world for me. And she had fallen in love with your genius, too? I could not be certain. You see, we were not on speaking terms. She was so jealous. But that, I said, is recognized as a sign of love. No doubt she wanted you entirely to herself. Who was the lady? What lady? he asked in surprise. The lady Miss O'Reilly was jealous of, I said. I never said she was jealous of a lady, though, of course, she would be jealous of the principal girl. I spoke of myself. But how, I questioned, could she be jealous unless she thought you were paying attention to some other woman? Oh, he said with slow enlightenment. I see what you mean, but you don't see what I mean. It was of me that she was jealous, or rather, of my song. You may not be aware that in pantomime we are allowed to choose our own songs. Well, it so happened that she and I both wanted to sing the same song. It was an exquisite thing called, Do You Think When You Wink? And as I had applied for permission to sing it first, she was told to select something else. That was why we did not speak. But if you loved her, I said, 
speaking, it is true, on a subject of which I knew little, you would surely have consented to waive your rights to the song. Love, it is said, delights in self-sacrifice. No doubt, he admitted, but you know the lines. I could not love you, dear, so much, loved I not honor more. Well, my honor was at stake, for I had promised my admirers in Dublin, and they were legion, see the shamrock for January 12, 1883, to sing that song. And my fame was at stake as well as my honor, for I created quite a furor with Do You Think When You Wink. Still, I insisted, love is all-powerful. I admit it, he answered, and what is more, I proved it, for after I had sung the song a week, I transferred it to her. Did she sing it as well as you had done? There was a mighty struggle within him before he could reply, but when he did speak, he was magnificent. She sang it better than I, he said firmly, and then winced. It was a great sacrifice you made, I said gently, but doubtless it had its reward. Did she give you her hand in exchange for the song? No, he answered. We were not married until a year after that. She was grateful to me, but soon we quarreled again. The fact is that I took a call, which she insisted was meant for her. She felt that disappointment terribly. Indeed, she has not got over it yet. She cannot speak about it without crying. You mean, I said, that you, years ago, deprived her of the privilege of curtsying to an audience? Surely she would not let that prey on her mind. You don't understand, he replied, that fame is food and drink to an artist. It was months before she forgave me that, though she is naturally the most tender-hearted creature. Our baggage man stole fifty pounds from her, and she would not prosecute him because she knew his sister. But you see, it was not money that I deprived her of. It was fame. And did you win your way back into her favor, I asked, by letting her take a call that was meant for you? No, he said. Several times I determined to do so, but when the moment came I could not make the sacrifice. I spent about half my salary in presents to her, but although she took them, she refused to listen to any proposal of marriage. By this time I had confessed my love for her. Well, we parted, and soon afterwards I got an engagement as chief comedian in The Powder Monkey Company, which was then on tour. She was playing chambermaid in it. Fancy that woman flinging herself away on chambermaids. I made a big hit in my part. The Lincoln Observer said, Mr. James Thorpe, the celebrated jolly little Jim, created a, but what about Miss O'Reilly, I asked. We got on swimmingly at first, he said. She had decided to forgive you? No, she was stiff the first day. But I put her up to a bit of business that used to be encored nightly, and then she accepted my offer of marriage. But a week after I had given her the engagement ring, she returned it to me. I don't blame her. You admit that she had just cause of complaint against you? Yes. No woman who was an artist could have stood it. The fact is that one night I took the upside of her on our comic love scene. That is to say, I had my face to the audience, and so she was forced to turn her back to them. I had no right to do it, but a sort of madness came over me, and I yielded to the impulse. As soon as we had made our exit, she flung the ring in my... Ah, uh, she gave me back the ring, and for the remainder of the tour, she was not civil to me. 
the tour ended abruptly indeed the manager decamped owing all of us a fortnight's salary and we were stranded in boodle without money to pay for our lodgings not to speak of our tickets back to london i pawned my watch and sold my fur coat and shared what i got for them with her and so the engagement was resumed no no that was merely a friendly act and it was accepted as such the engagement was not resumed until i got a par about her into a sunday paper but that is the bell again i'll tell you the rest after her death scene End of section 10 recording by todd